morning. This morning's Old Testament passage you can find in Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. Verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant the others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will never harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Today's New Testament teaching text is Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but I I can't hear those words too many times. Again, my name is Matt. If if there's anyone who I haven't met, um, I serve as pastor here. And I'm excited to be with you this morning to be talking about a new heaven and a new earth. All right. And I think... When we think about these things, the, the first question that might come to mind, a question that maybe you've been asked, maybe you've asked yourself, where will you go when you die? Where will you go when you die? 
It's not a loaded question, right? I mean, for decades, this was the question you'd see perhaps on a street evangelist cardboard sign. Do you know where you'll go when you die? If you got hit by a bus today, do you know where you'd go when you die? And many street evangelists are probably still using this question. I mean, it's a compelling question. What is going to happen after a day? This gnawing question might have been the one that got you to show up to a church in the first place. Where am I going to go when I die? It might be a question you still ponder often. Maybe you're uncertain and wondering that. Is there life after death? If so, what's it like? Where will I go when I die? Think about that question for a minute now. In your imagination, if you were to close your eyes, imagine in your mind's eye, where is the place you go when you die and and what's it like there? What's it like? What do you see in your imagination? One of the classic words we use when we think about that place we go when we die is heaven. Heaven. And I wonder, when you think of that word, again, what comes to mind? What images, what pictures, perhaps even what sensations or feelings when you think of heaven? Well, the place I go to do all my research is, of course, Google Images. And when you search heaven on Google Images, this is what apparently many people imagine. This is the top image, the first one. Blue skies, the sunlight piercing through clouds, ethereal stairways. The next image, very similar, except this time, you're in a business suit. (laughs) Um, The next one, classic image, pearly gates, right? We say it's in great country songs about pearly gates. And then the next one, same thing, but this time with a shirtless guy dressed in all white. In heaven, we will all have six-pack abs. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But really, these are the, the, the first images that pop up when you search for this. And it's not that these are the only four. All of them, when you scroll down, with a few exceptions, are that, is that sort of color scheme, blue and white, that sort of idea. And I wonder, was this the sort of thing that came to mind when you were imagining heaven? Hopefully not the six-pack abs guy, but (laughs) something. And I mean, don't be ashamed if something like this did come to mind. This has been the dominant cultural imagination of heaven for the last century, really. And it's been perpetuated by all sorts of media and entertainment, right? Any TV show where they talk about heaven, at some point, they'll be up in the clouds. Um, So, of course, it might be what we think of when we think of heaven. Another classic word used to describe the afterlife, paradise. Paradise. Do the same sort of thought experiment. What comes to mind for you? Paradise. Jesus says, Jesus says, 
when he's on the cross, the man next to him, who's also dying on a cross, Jesus says to him, I assure you, this day you will be with me in paradise. What, what was Jesus talking about? What comes to mind for you? Well, again, our cultural Rorschach text, ugh, test, Google Images. It's essentially, if you scroll through all of them, it's essentially a beachside resort somewhere. Paradise. It's Fiji, Cancun, Bali, Jamaica. If you look at a lot of these, there's a lot of people in bikinis. Everyone's skinny. Maybe wearing a Speedo if they're in Europe. Drinking Coronas and Pina Coladas. And of course, in paradise, there's no work to be done. You just sit on your lounge chair and everybody serves you. Your only job is to dig your toes in the sand and watch the waves. These sort of images come up over and over. Again, the whole thing, when you scroll down, it's just all white sand. That's paradise. Now, I'll be honest, it sounds kind of appealing. And I'm sure it will sound even more appealing in mid-February in Chicago with a three-year-old in our house. (laughs) I mean, of course that sounds nice. Who doesn't want that? In fact... You know, doing this research, I got so excited. When I leave today, I might have to see if we can book a little uh, vacation or something for February. Who wouldn't want that, right? But for eternity? Now, after the chaos of the last three years with the pandemic and everything, I could do like at least a month, maybe three months, maybe even six months. But eternity? Sipping pina coladas poolside, it might get kind of boring. It might be a bit much. Where will you go when you die? And if it's not a poolside cabana on your own private island, where is it? What I want us to do, if possible, is actually ask a different question. Not where will I go when I die, but what is the biblical image of the future, the biblical vision of the future? I think this gets at our same desire of wondering what comes next, but from a less individualistic perspective of where am I going to go? What happens to me? And instead of that question, what happens to me? It's what is God doing with all of this creation? Today we're talking about the future. The future. This is the final sermon in a seven-week series that has been called All Things New, Following Jesus as Perpetual Beginners. And it's based on the conviction that change and newness is woven into the very fabric of Christianity itself. To follow Jesus is to be continually surprised at the new things he's up to in our world and in our lives. And because of this, because he's up to new things, we can be people of deep hope. We can be truly hopeful people because God's at work renewing all things.
when we live in light of this good news, we can have real substantial hope today, even when things are not as they should be. But the always new work of God also pushes us into a place of humility. For something to be new means it is at least partially unknown to us. It's at least partially unknown. So to fully embrace the good news of the gospel, we have to approach it as children. Perpetually curious and open to a fresh movement of God. We have to become beginners again. Holding hope and humility hand in hand. And there's perhaps nowhere where these two themes, hope and humility, are more necessarily intertwined than when we talk about the future. The future is always, at least partially, if not entirely, unknown to us. Jesus talked about this idea in Matthew 18. He says, beginning in verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus... And they asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him, placed the child among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change, other translations use that stronger word, unless you convert and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so hope, humility, heaven... They all exist in the same breath. And I wonder for you, can you hold hope and humility as we talk about heaven? This is something we all have our own ideas about. Many of us have our ideas made up already. And I know that there are people here, people in our community, who've recently lost uh, friends, family, parents, And trust me, I'm not trying to belittle your hope, but to enlarge it. So so ask yourself, can 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 I go on that journey right now? Can I rethink heaven a little bit? Yeah? Okay, here we go. No passage in the Bible talks about going to heaven after you die. That's right. The phrase, go to heaven, does not appear anywhere in the Old or New Testaments relating to death. Not once. This, of course, doesn't mean that the Bible has nothing to say about what happens to people after they die. It just means that going to heaven isn't the way biblical authors thought about it. Okay. So if heaven isn't just where you go when you die, if it isn't just clouds and stairways and pearly gates, what is it? What 
is the Bible talking about when it talks about heaven? When Jesus talks about heaven? When Jesus, Jesus says, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Become like a little kid. What are people talking about there? Well, I think one of the most helpful ways to think about heaven is simply in relation to earth. So, I spent a lot of time this week on the slides. <laughs> Far too much time. So, if, if the words aren't that great, it's because I spent too much time on the slides. <laughs> but here we have heaven and earth, okay? And a lot of these thoughts are taken from uh, Tim Mackey with the Bible Project, um, he helpfully points out that when the Bible talks about heaven and earth, it's talking about God's space, heaven, and our space, earth. Okay? You could say, if you don't want to use the word space, you could use word, more church, churchy words, God's realm and our realm, the human realm, if you prefer. And we understand our realm. We understand earth pretty well, right? We know that we have trees and rivers, and we've learned how to study that sort of stuff, how to understand how our space works, biology, physics, all that good stuff. We can touch it. We can see it. We start to grasp and understand it. But because God's space is, well, God's, What we end up with in the Bible are images, pictures, and metaphors doing their best to understand what is outside our understanding. It's God's realm. And so heaven and earth are two very different places. Heaven is holy. It is other. It is the spiritual realm where God is utterly and completely present everywhere and in everything And everywhere and everything is utterly and completely under his rule and reign. It all does exactly what God would want it to do. Rule, so so heaven, you got rule and reign. This is why Jesus often uses kingdom language, the kingdom of heaven. It's where God's presence, rule, and reign are manifest. Where everything is in line with how God desires it to be. And what's incredible about the story of Scripture is that these spaces, while they are so distinct, they can actually overlap at times. In fact, the beginning of Scripture, so I just want to go through the story of Scripture, talking about these two spaces. Okay, in the beginning of Scripture, the space God creates is one of overlap. It's God's good creation And Adam and Eve in this story are meant to inhabit and cultivate the Garden of Eden. Uh, Garden is interesting language to talk about in God's creation because a garden is something that will not exist on its own without human intervention, sort of helping it, cultivating it, bringing about flourishing in it. And so it's a partnership image. And that's Adam and Eve's original calling. In Genesis, it's to expand the garden. To expand the place of heaven on earth by procreating, right? They're called to create more and more and to cultivate the goodness of God. 
his presence, rule, and reign. See, the arrows, the Garden of Eden is meant to expand. This realm of, of heaven is meant to expand to all the earth. That's what the arrows are. They're, they're meant to partner with God to expand the garden, building a beautiful, flourishing world in creation. But instead, many of us who've been in church, we know what happens, right? They're deceived. They choose to pursue life in their own way, apart from God. You get sin, ugliness, injustice, evil. They all enter the picture, and heaven and earth, God and humanity, are separated. Not just separated, it's kind of like when you put magnets, right, on the wrong sides, and they, they just will not stay together. They keep pushing each other apart. God's space of justice and beauty is now in conflict in conflict and contrast with our space of injustice, of evil. And the story could have just continued like this, with the chasm and the gap growing further and further apart until entropy fully takes over the earth and it all just dissolves into nothingness and it's over. And God maybe starts again with some other creation, who knows. But instead... Eventually, we're introduced to this biblical idea of a temple. If you read about Israel's story, there's this idea of a temple. And a temple is this place where heaven and earth overlap again. Where God's space and our space overlap. And what's amazing about Israel's tabernacle and temple is the imagery when, when you read some of these stories in Exodus about the, t- the temple and the tabernacle, they're decorated with these carven images of fruit trees, of flowers, hearkening back to the garden, images of angels, gold and jewel, hearkening to God's realm. And so it's designed to feel like when you enter in, you're inhabiting this other realm. You're inhabiting God's Space. You're going back to the Garden of Eden. But there's still these magnets that are in opposition to one another. So in order for humanity to meet with God again in that temple space, it requires sacrifice. Because these two spaces are still in conflict. So in, in Israel, you end up with, with animal sacrifices. This whole temple sacrificial system where... They have to kill all these animals. And the idea is that somehow the animal's death absorbs our sin. Absorbs the person sacrificing the animal. It absorbs their sin. And it creates a clean space temporarily where heaven and earth can overlap. Where you can enter in temporarily because the animal has absorbed the sin. It's absorbed the evil in their death. And so you can be in God's presence for but a moment. And it's this always, again and again, another animal, another animal, another animal. I'm grateful that Israel's temple system isn't God's ultimate plan for reuniting heaven and earth. And so we hear in Israel's story all these prophecies about this Messiah, 
about this suffering servant, about this person who's going to take on all of the sin, who's somehow going to be able to absorb it all. All these prophecies about a Messiah. And then when Jesus shows up in the incarnation, early in the Gospel of John, John says, John says that in his incarnation, the Word became flesh. Jesus, the Word become flesh and dwells among us. You know, the word there is that he tabernacles among us. The image of Jesus early on is this image of a temple. He's a walking temple. He's the movable space where heaven and earth overlap. There's this language that in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus, the fullness of heaven, the fullness of God dwells, and yet he's fully human. So he is that perfect intersection, that perfect overlapping instance of heaven and earth. That's Jesus. And what happens is everywhere Jesus goes, he therefore brings bits of heaven with him. And in him, it says he was without sin, there's no unclean space. But somehow he hangs out with lepers and sex workers and tax collectors, saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. Reach out and touch it. It's within reach. But this kind of language, even saying it aloud in the church is dangerous. Jesus doing it was much more dangerous inviting people into the kingdom of heaven, it inevitably offended other kinds of people, especially the people who built their whole platform keeping those people out. And those people happened to be in power when Jesus was around. So Jesus ends up crucified on a Roman cross. But what's so amazing about the ways of God is that in trying to spoil Jesus' plan to reunite heaven and earth, they only make it all the more possible for it to happen. Because Jesus isn't just the temple. He's also the temple sacrifice. He's the pure and spotless Lamb of God. His death absorbs the sins of the world, making it possible for heaven and earth to fully overlap once more because there will be in God's economy no unclean space and so what happens after Jesus in the gospels we get to the church Jesus is ascended and he sends his spirit to empower you to empower us to empower the church of God in the world to embody this kingdom of heaven on earth. And so he teaches us to pray things like, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our ultimate hope isn't actually meant to be going to heaven. It's meant to be the marriage of heaven and earth. 
And up here you can see this. We get caught in, in two really, honestly, unbiblical ways of thinking about the future. The first is this sort of escapist idea that we go to heaven and earth is just going to be all burned up. All right, so there's, there's me on earth. I got to get to heaven, hopefully before the fire. Uh, I went to a school called Moody Bible Institute, and there's a lot of wonderful things about it, and a lot of wonderful things that Dwight Moody, who it's named after, did and said. But one of the things he said that was not so great was that uh, the earth is basically just like a sinking ship. And so the church's job is just to throw a bunch of life rafts out, a bunch of sort of uh, lifesavers, to get people off this ship and into heaven. There's not much biblical precedence for that kind of thinking. It's helpful because it's extremist. So you're like, we got to get people out of here. It makes you act quick. Because if the earth's sinking, we better act quick to get people off of it. But it's not the biblical image of the future. I said yes to Jesus so I can make it to heaven while the earth burns. In this understanding, there's really no reason to care about the physical planet. It'll just burn up anyways, and probably soon. And uh, part of the reason for a lot of prophecies that say that the earth is going to end soon is because it's extremely beneficial to a lot of big business. If earth is ending soon, I can keep operating my company exactly how it is, no matter how much harm it causes to others, because this thing's ending soon anyways, so I don't need to think about three, four generations their kids and their kids. There's also no real reason to care about beauty and culture and the arts. Justice is just a distraction unless people say a quick prayer and get their fire insurance. The other illusion, though, is on the opposite end of the spectrum. And it's the myth of progress. If we just had better education, better, if people just believed science... If we just had better science, people believed it. If we had maybe more time in nature, we could overcome all the problems that plague society and we could create some sort of utopian heaven on earth. This hasn't worked out so well. This hasn't worked out so well. It usually turns into, uh, honestly, a lot of uh, oppression and murder of people who you think maybe shouldn't be in this new heaven on earth. This is, uh, I mean, in some ways, the myth of secular humanism. People use this language of, you want the kingdom without the king. I like some of the ideals of Jesus, like loving one another, but I'm certainly not going to fall on bended knee before him. No, we don't need Jesus. What we need to do is try harder, be better, and then we can build heaven here. See, the biblical vision of the future isn't about escaping to heaven or building heaven on earth without God, as if that'd be possible. But it's the marriage of heaven and earth of the complete overlapping of both spaces. Look at that. 
I even made it move some. <laughs> Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The dream, the vision of John from Jesus in Revelation is of a new heaven and a new earth. Of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth is one way to think about it. Which is important because it means God is at work even renewing the earth. The image that Jesus could have given John in Revelation is just, then I saw heaven. And everyone was in clouds playing harps. And many of them were shirtless with six-pack abs and white denim jackets. But that's not his image. He's renewing the earth. It's a new earth. Remember, that's our space. That's humanity's space. Which means at least one thing, if not many, many more. Heaven will be more familiar than we think. It will be recognizable. It has our space in it. God's vision for the future has the earth in it. It's a new earth. It's a renewed earth. But it's earth. This is good news. There's a novel um, that many good preachers quote from. And if they don't, they should start. It's called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. And in it, the protagonist narrator, his name's John Ames, and he's a pastor uh, in Iowa. And he's talking with his other pastor friend named Boughton. Boughton. And both of them, they're in their later stages of life. They're, they're old men who've, who've pastored. And Ames reflects on his friend Boughton's view of heaven. He says this. Boughton, who's getting old, says he has more ideas about heaven every day. He said, mainly I just think about the splendors of the world and multiply by two. I'd multiply by ten or twelve if I had the energy, but two is much more than sufficient for my purposes. So he's just sitting there multiplying the feel of the wind by two, multiplying the smell of the grass by two. I love that idea. Imagine the splendors of life on earth and multiply them by two. Now, honestly, they'll probably be significantly higher than just multiplied by two, but it's a place to start in our imagination. It's a place to start, just to imagine those moments like that. Um, I'm not going to quote all the biblical precedent for this, But in Isaiah 60, Isaiah 65, and 66, there's all sorts of images of heaven that include the things of the world, renewed and redeemed. Uh, Particularly, he talks about the ships of Tarshish, which were these massive, glorious ships. But they were actually used for war uh, against Israel. Uh, They were used to bring about soldiers to oppress Israel. But in Isaiah's vision of the kingdom of heaven, the ships are in there. 
And they're bringing people in to praise God. So it's this idea that there's this cultural good that could be used for bad that is renewed and brought about in the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's a really, really powerful, beautiful image. I love this idea. Multiply it by two. Our future will be in some ways recognizable. It's earth, but it's a new earth. The new creation will also be in some ways unrecognizable. Jesus is a great uh, image of how this might be. Jesus is called in the scriptures the firstborn of the new creation. Uh, His resurrection gives us the clearest picture of what to hope for, for us. When Jesus is resurrected, uh, it's in his actual body. It has scars on it. He's able to eat fish with his friends. He's able to be with people. It's a real body. It's matter. It's stuff. It's solid. He's able to be physically present with his disciples. But then in some of those stories after the resurrection, Jesus is unrecognizable by people who should have recognized him. And he's also able to go through locked doors and just do things that he wasn't able to do before his resurrection. He's new creation. The firstborn from the dead, he's called. And our deep and true hope is that he's bringing all those who confess faith in him along with him. He's the firstborn, meaning we will be born like him from the dead. We too will be new creation. Not a disembodied soul floating in clouds in some spiritual realm, but citizens of heaven on earth, when heaven and earth fully and completely overlap. John continues in verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I hope you're catching this. God's new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, comes down comes down from heaven. It's coming down to us. The final picture isn't that we die and go up to heaven. It comes down to us. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He's quoting what was read today in Isaiah And it's this obvious image of heaven and earth overlapping. God's space and our space are one. He will dwell with them. And it continues in verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The image, the language is of marriage. 
It's the marriage of heaven and earth. It's communion with God. One way that we get to participate in this overlapping. There's many, many ways. One is announcing the kingdom like Jesus did. It's at hand. It's here. Do you want it? So you can invite other people in if you want. Okay? Another way is right here and right now. In singing, in worship. Um, Worship is a foretaste of heaven. Worship is this space where heaven and earth overlap. Where we partner with the angels and the archangels, as my brother was reminding me today. We join heaven in this space, in singing. That doesn't mean it's, it's going to all of a sudden, because I said that, it's going to feel like amazing and be the most a special moment of worship you've ever had. Maybe it will. Maybe it'll feel like you're just singing words. But you are joining with the angels and archangels. You are anticipating the future rule and reign of God now in this space, in this time. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to say a prayer and invite us to be reminded that even now, by the Spirit, heaven and earth are overlapping. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you bring to our minds, to our imaginations, to our senses, to our bodies, the reality that we enter into when we worship, which is that this is now a thin space, a space where heaven and earth touch, and not just touch, but overlap. That in worship, we get to enter into liminal space. Lord, would you help us to believe that, to perceive that, to live in light of that reality this morning? Lord, help us not to take heaven lightly, but to actually take it very seriously. Help us, God, to anticipate your future even today. In Jesus' name, amen.